Nathan, would you like to accept the Lord Jesus Christ as your savior? Mm, I don't know if I want to make that choice, Austin. Well, the question is, do you really have a choice? I'm Austin. I'm Nathan. And, and welcome, welcome to the world, to the world of religion. Welcome back to the world of religions. Weekly We're episodes. Keeping our schedule so far. Yeah, I mean it's been two episodes, but that's fine. That's good. That's as well as we've ever done. So some progress it. is progress. So today we're gonna take things uh, back to a more common religion in the Western tradition. That would be uh, Protestant Christianity. Not exclusively Protestant, but they're the ones who seem to have the obsession with this topic. Yeah, and it's kind of a unique feature of pro- intra-Protestant debates. Like, all denominations and churches have their own internal disputes, and they'll have one or two key doctrines where it's like, oh, do you fall on side A or side B of this? You know, divides friendships, wrecks families, all of that. The classics. But, yeah, but the matter of predestination, at least in my experience, and I assume you'd agree with this from your time in the protestant church austin the doctrine of predestination and free will is always one of those really tense ones yeah if you've spent any time around especially protestant christians but just christians in general it it will come up and people have unusually strong opinions about it like it it doesn't fit the bill that most Christian doctrines have for being what a lot of people want to call core issues. Like a lot of the Christianity is a religion with lots and lots of denominations, as you can probably, as you probably know, you got Baptists, Presbyterians, Anglicans, Catholics, Orthodox, and thousands of non-denominational churches. But they like to, at least, especially among Protestants, they like to unify along what they call core issues of theology. Things like Jesus Christ was incarnated as a human and died for your sins. And baptism is a good thing you should do. And the Trinity, mostly. But then you get this weird thing that is debated so often, but is not really in that category of super important doctrines, or it doesn't feel like it is. And that's the predestination versus free will argument. Is that kind of similar experience for you? Yeah, I would say so. And it's so interesting because... It really, at least when you look at the history of the church, obviously the question has come up throughout the ages. Augustine very famously defended predestination. But it's really with the Protestants that the debate took on such central importance in drawing lines. Yeah. In fact, while uh, Augustine was talking about free will and predestination in his 4th and 5th century work, in the late 5th century there was actually a council, the Council of Arles, that condemned the position that, quote, some have been condemned to death, others have been predestined to life, which is basically what today we might call double predestination, that God chooses some people to save and chooses other people to damn. And the Second Council of Orange, which was in 529, uh, basically reaffirmed that position. So that was kind of the end of the early debate, but then the Protestant Reformation kind of kicked it back into high gear. 
So I think it might be worth defining some terms because not everyone necessarily knows what exactly we're talking about yet. Right. Always good to define terms. So you mentioned double predestination. Let's start out with just predestination in general. So predestination in general refers to the position that God has from eternity past chosen individuals for salvation. And this doesn't necessarily go against free will. Just predestination, pure and simple, just means God chose people. Right. It might seem strange that God both chooses and we have free will. And well, welcome to the world of religions. This is the stuff we analyze. But just plain and simple, God chooses people to save. Right. And this will also be referred to as the doctrine of election. And it has a history in the Hebrew Bible even older than individual salvation. Today, we tend to think of it almost exclusively in terms of individual salvation. But for the Hebrew Bible or the Old Testament, as Christians referred to it, election referred to God's selection of Israel as his chosen nation, as ambassador among the peoples of the world. So that's where the concept has its roots. And then it's with the Pauline letters in the New Testament that oftentimes it's, it's debated as to whether Paul would have understood the same way that Protestants make their arguments. Well, that's that the whole nature of religious debate. It's taking the source material and, and trying to figure out what it said. So Right. And, but what everyone would agree on is that election is of concern to Paul. Yeah. And yeah. he uses the word predestination. Exactly. And that's why we're having our base definition be plain and simple, God choosing people. Because all Christians, whether you fall on the Calvinist side, which is the very strongly in favor of God's choosing over and above human will, or the Arminian side, which is the side of people having more influence with their free will, both believe in a form of predestination. It's not predestination versus free will. It's how do we understand free will in the context of predestination is the question that's being asked. So speaking of Calvinism and Arminianism, let's take some time to look at the men themselves, John Calvin and Jacobus Arminius. Yeah, so they were uh, later reformers. So when you have the history of of church history, you have the Protestant Reformation, which starts with Martin Luther in the 1500s. 1521 is the classic Diet of Worms, big actual date for the Reformation to start. Uh, John Calvin joins the bandwagon pretty soon after. Uh, And then Jacobus Arminius is kind of a second wave reformer. He comes comes after Calvin and basically questions Calvin's thoughts. Right. And it's worth noting that while in contemporary debates, Calvinism is often posed as being the reformed position and Arminianism is the non-reformed position. Arminius saw himself as a reformer. Now, the Reformed Church would ultimately disagree with him at the Synod of Dort, but that's our perspective looking back. At the time, Arminius saw himself as part of this movement that Calvin had started, but as with all theology, he was going to develop, respond to, and critique those who had gone before him. So with this history, we can see how this idea of predestination developed. It actually, Luther was the first to open the can of worms. He wrote a treatise called On the Bondage of the Will against a Catholic theologian named Erasmus. And Erasmus was sort of a Catholic reformer. He tried to reform the issues with the Catholic Church from within the Church, whereas Luther eventually wound up breaking away. 
And while Erasmus and Luther really respected each other and each other's work, they did not agree on the issue of predestination and free will. They wrote a series of letters back and forth to each other debating the topic. Erasmus basically tied free will, and this is the general Catholic Orthodox position, to God's foreknowledge. He said that God predestines those who he knows will already choose him. Luther disagreed and said that God has to make a specific choice that overrides free will because human free will is inherently broken and destroyed by sin. Because of this, God has to choose us before we can properly use our free will to choose him. Calvin went a little farther with this idea. Do you want to talk about that as as the resident Presbyterian, Nathan? <laughs> <laughs> That's true. I am technically Presbyterian, even though I am not myself a proponent of Calvinism. Long story. So Calvin essentially comes into this debate on the matter of predestination and takes as his theological starting point the sovereignty of God. Throughout all of his systematic theology, Calvin is thinking from the standpoint of God is sovereign. If you remember from our Is God Overpowered episode, he's, he's taken the omnipotence and the bigness of God seriously. Oh yeah. He wouldn't be using the exact philosophical terms we were, but... <laughs> bigness. <laughs> Institutes section 2, subsection 7. <laughs> the bigness of God. Does he actually say that? No. <laughs> um, so as Calvin is thinking about election, for him, God's sovereignty means that human salvation depends entirely on God's will. Now, this is not necessarily a novel view because Christians since the beginning have thought that it is only by God's work through the incarnation, the crucifixion, and the resurrection that humans can be saved. What's distinct about this is that throughout the early church, there was generally still the belief that humans cooperated with God's saving work. And this is called synergy, which from the Greek roots simply means working together. Calvin, on the other hand, thought that synergy was an effort to elevate the human will beyond its proper place. For Calvin, God alone was the author of salvation, and this meant that since the human will was totally depraved, it was completely God's choice to redeem. And so humans are not themselves making the choice without God's initial willing of that choice. Would you agree with that description, Austin? Yeah, and I think uh, it might be interesting to ask. I think this all kind of, of course, it's a, it's a question about God's uh, choice, God's sovereignty on the surface. But I wonder if the deeper issue is a question of the effect of sin on humanity. Whereas an Arminian or a uh, Catholic perspective might be that sin damages the human person, it doesn't fully incapacitate them as far as their will is concerned. Within Christian theology, human will is a huge topic. What is the capacity of the human will? It's big because, like all religions, Christianity has a code of ethics, a moral system, and we need to follow that. However, the idea is that sin in some way corrupts our ability to even be good. That's why Christianity says we needed a savior, uh, Jesus Christ, who died to basically undo that corruption that sin brought to the human will. 
Correct. And this is one of those, and this is another point of distinction between Protestantism and Catholicism, because Catholicism speaks of this notion of the virginal point or point vierge in French, which is the idea that however much humanity is corrupted, it hasn't entirely destroyed the image of God within a person. And that's not to say that Protestants would affirm that the image of God is totally destroyed, but the Catholic position maintains more optimism. Right, that, that humans have a capacity to, to do a lot of good. Uh, you can see this in the, in the Catholic practice of the, and the Orthodox practice of the veneration of saints. That's not a thing in Protestantism because they take a more, perhaps a more negative view of human capacity. Catholics would say that, empowered by God, certainly, people can rise to a pretty high level of morality and virtue. That's why they have saints. Saints are moral exemplars. They've done really, really well morally, ethically, spiritually, and you can look to them as examples. Protestants are a lot less comfortable with that idea because of a much stronger emphasis on the damage done by sin to the human person. People aren't capable of being that great, and if they ever attain a point of moral greatness, it's so much so God-empowering them that it's it's almost foolish to praise the person. You need to give praise directly to God. And that's why they don't have the intermediary of the saint. Is that a fair assessment, would you say? Yeah, I would agree with that. And so when we look at Protestantism, while Calvinists and Arminians dispute the matter of to what extent the human will is involved, they actually start from a common position, which is that the human will has been corrupted. Exactly. Their answer to how humans can be saved is where the difference lies. Calvinists, being monergists, will say that since the human will is so corrupted, it is only by God's will and grace drawing the person into the relationship that one can enter the salvific relationship. Arminius develops this notion of prevenient grace, or grace that goes before. And the way that Arminius answers the problem of how the corrupted human can enter the relationship is to say that God has filled all of creation with this grace that goes before, and this works against the curse. And through this grace, all humans are given the capacity to choose of their own will. So this is kind of the head of the issue, is that it's how we deal with sin. That's the big question when it comes to free will and predestination. It's who is doing the heavy lifting. A Calvinist position would say that humans can't, that because humanity is so thoroughly corrupted, we can't do the work of good works. We can't be good to any real capacity without God. Arminius and others would allow that God has already done that work on behalf of us. And so it's now, it, the ball's now in our court that we have to make use of this prevenient grace, this grace that already happened, in order to act morally, achieve salvation, that sort of thing. Right. And it's worth noting that Calvin's position is not original to him, right? Augustine was the first one to, at least the first one to my knowledge, to make the case that yeah. those who are not saved, even when they seem to do things that are virtuous, are actually not. 
yeah, I would agree with that. I think I think Augustine was the first person to articulate this sort of idea. However, he was in a unique historical moment because he was dealing with the Pelagian controversy, which uh, Pelagius was condemned as a heretic by the Church Catholic in the 4th, 5th century. And he preached that a more extreme version of free will, so extreme that he actually completely discounted predestination. So now we remember that Calvin, God does all the work. God chooses who he's going to save. He elects them and they're saved and there's really nothing they can do about it. We can talk more about that in a bit. Arminius says God kind of has given us the power to choose. We weren't capable before, but he gives us provenient grace. He gives the ability to choose. Pelagius says, no, people have always had the ability to choose. And God does not, we don't need anything specifically from God. Jesus Christ serves merely as an example that we're to strive for. But there's no mechanical power behind that God enacts in order to work our salvation. This was a viewed as a very harmful belief. It was seen as greatly diminishing the worth of God. And so it was obvious. And of course, the incarnation of Christ, his death and resurrection, all of that, it's, it was seen as cheapening that. And so it was condemned as heresy. So Augustine, in his moment, was fighting against what he perceived as a threat from the free will side, the overemphasis of free will. So it makes a lot of sense that he started talking about a more God-predestining-focused position. Right. And it's also worth noting that while the church sided with Augustine against Pelagius on the matter of whether there was you know, absolute free will condemning Pelagius, it did not canonize Augustine's stronger view of predestination. Right. As we talked about with the councils in the 5th century. And... The reason why the Pelagius-Augustine debate is so relevant to this conversation, aside from being historical precedent, is that one of the accusations leveled against Arminius and his theological allies was that they were either Pelagians or semi-Pelagians. Semi-Pelagians, yes. That's a term that gets thrown around still a lot in it, contemporary It is still you, yeah. Yeah, so why is this such an issue? Because as we talked about, it's, it's, it's kind of all God's thing. It's not like baptism, which is an initiation rite in the church. And that's, that's super important. Initiation rites are super important. They're how you kind of get into the religion. Every religion has something or other of, initiation, of an initiation rite. Communion is super important. And that's a big debate among Christians because that's, that's partaking with the divine, you know, communing with the divine. That's super important in all religions. But this is just a question about what God does. And Christianity often talks about the transcendence of God, the unknowability of God, why we can't really know what God is doing, which makes it very interesting that on this one point about what God is doing, it's become such a massive debate that everyone seems to think they have the completely correct solution to, and other solutions are really problematic. Right. And I think part of the reason why people are so committed to their positions is because it often seems as though the position you take on this matter reflects larger beliefs or concerns about the character of God. Exactly. 
Arminians will often criticize Calvinists as holding to a God who is not sufficiently loving. Calvinists will fire back that the Arminian conception of God is one who is not truly sovereign, but must bow to human will. Right, and that's the crux of the issue. It's an attack on God's character either way. It's not just some airy-fairy, ivory tower, mechanical question about how God does random things. It's what you say on it reflects, at least everyone seems to think, how you conceive of God. And his love and his power are at stake. Both huge deals in Christianity and, you know, just about every other religion. You want a God that's powerful. You want a God that's loving, more often than not. Certainly, if you have a conception of a personal God, then you would probably want that God to love you. (laughs) And you'd also want that God to be, you know, capable of doing things, not subject to human will. That's not entirely the case. A lot of religions have petitionary gods that that humans, humans really do influence them. But of the big three monotheisms, Christianity, Islam, and Judaism specifically, God's power is important, super important, as we talked about back in the Is God Overpowered episode. So these two beliefs uh, and these two accusations of Arminians yelling, you don't have a loving God, and Calvinists yelling, you don't have a sovereign God, it leads to some interesting internal weirdnesses, let's say, that go along with each position. And we're all about weirdness here on Welcome to the World of Religions. Yeah. This has been too much history. It's time for some strange things. Go ahead. (laughs) So among Calvinist churches, and again, I am a member of a Calvinist church, there's this interesting tension between the belief that God has predestined all those who will be saved towards salvation. And because God is sovereign, there is nothing that can get in the way of that. If God has declared someone saved, they shall be saved. Their eternity is secure with him. And yet at the same time, Calvinists put great stock and effort into winsome preaching and delivery of the gospel. And missions work, like overseas mission work, which is really bizarre when you think about it. Right. There's this tension between, on the one hand, the command for humans to go ye into all the world and make disciples, as Jesus says in the Great Commission at the end of Matthew, and this more theoretical position about the mechanical setup of these people's eternal destiny. And so Calvinists both affirm that God has chosen these people and there's nothing that humans can do for or against it ultimately, and also affirm that God uses humans somehow throughout the process. So it's like this almost backwards causation thing in a way. It's like God wants to save person X who lives in, I don't know, some island, some, uh, East Asian island that hasn't been reached with the gospel. God has elected that person. And the means he's chosen to save that person, let's say, in in, in the Christian faith, is by missionary Joe from First Presbyterian Church in Kentucky. So missionary Joe has to go there and preach to this person so that they'll be saved. But that's because God has said that they'll be saved that Joe has to go. Can Joe choose to go? Can Joe choose not to go? Well, not really, because person X still has to be saved. I'm still using that because I I can't think of an Eastern Asian name off the top of my head. (laughs) Well, let's keep going with that. So this is part of why the debate about predestination 
tends to spill into broader concerns about human will in general. So while technically predestination and free will in Calvinism and Arminianism are centrally concerned with the matter of will a person choose to dedicate their lives to following Jesus Christ as the Messiah, the debate often branches out into concerns of, well, if you are a Calvinist, are you therefore a determinist? Do you believe that no human actions are legitimately willed? And this was kind of Calvin's position. If you read his commentaries on Genesis especially, he, he's a big proponent of divine determinism all the way through. Because there's so many pieces that lead up to a Christian salvation. You know, you need to hear about the gospel. You need to make the decision to join it. You need to get baptized and all these things. And all of those things require human components. You need a preacher. You need uh, a pastor or priest to do the baptism. You need a person to help them along and, you know, preach the gospel to them, you know, at church services. And all of those components are necessary for the salvation of this individual that God has supposedly preordained. So all of those actions are kind of effectively necessary to happen. So they have to be preordained as well. Someone has to do it. We can debate on this. I mean, the debate can happen on the specifics. But it seems to necessitate, if you want to say election for salvation is the way the Calvinists do it, I, I don't really see a way out of a very strong divine determinist position because there's so many pieces that go along with it. Unless you just want to say, God's going to boom down from the heavens and say, I've chosen you, be saved now. But we don't hear that often. <laughs> that doesn't happen that right. often. I mean, even among Calvinists, you're not going to hear that that often. Now, it's worth noting that not all Calvinists are determinists. Right. However... Right. It's one of those tensions that you are going to find inevitably in every faith tradition. This is part of the work of systematic theology and philosophical reasoning. You look at your various points of belief and try to find how they can exist in tension with one another. Yeah. And the tension is not always entirely resolvable. And that is something that takes faith and work and is important. And that's why we're able to make these podcasts, because if everything was neat and resolvable, there'd be nothing weird to analyze. <laughs> Correct. And so that's an interesting tension within the Calvinist camp. What about the Arminians? Yeah, they're not really safe from it either because they want to affirm this idea of predestination. They just define it as something that just really doesn't sound like predestination. When you hear predestination, pull that word apart. What are the two pieces? Predestined, to order towards a destiny. That's pretty irrevocable. And pre, of course, you know, beforehand, doing it before you even existed at least that's what Calvin would say. The Arminian and others would just say that predestination isn't really predestination, it's foreknowledge. And now we get into wacky God and time stuff. Austin's favorite. Yeah. I think the tensions are more easily resolved on the Arminian side, but they're still there. So God knows that Pastor Joe from Kentucky, the Presbyterian minister who went to the East uh, Asian islands, God knows that he will... At age 22, go to a Billy Graham crusade or whatever and make the decision to follow the Christian God and get his Christian salvation. Cool. So then God says, I predestine Mr. Joe to be saved. You see the problem here? Yeah, it's almost like, well, if Joe is going to make this decision, is God predestining him just a formality? Right. Is, and it's also, does, does Joe have control over God? 
maybe, maybe he does. And that's a, that's a really tough thing for the Arminian to answer. And of course, they would probably say no, just like the Calvinist would often say, no, I'm not a strict determinist. But the logic kind of leads there, no matter what. The human does a thing, or the human will do a thing, that causes God to decide a thing. Now, this isn't, I don't think this is unresolvable, because, I mean, talk, th think about prayer. Just about every religion has prayer. What's one of the main operations of prayer? Getting God to do stuff. And, you know, Christianity certainly talks about how the, the power of prayer, that's something you'll hear a lot in Christian circles. Prayer can do things. Prayer has power. If prayer has power, that means humans are influencing God in some way. I don't think it necessarily causes a massive, like, reality failure where the puny humans are influencing the massive God. Just about every religion, I would say, every, probably with the exception of Islam, every religion allows humans to influence God in some way, or the gods. So I think the Arminians have a better time with the contradictions, but they still wind up in this weird place of humans kind of... They're doing a bit more than just influencing God to, you know, help them out in a difficult situation or make their project work out. They're influencing God's decision on who he saves. Right. And so as you can see, both of these camps have challenges and the challenges persist because both sides can point to parts of their agreed upon holy text, the Bible, that give weight to their side. Right. The Calvinist will say, read Romans 9. The Arminians will say, read the rest of the Bible. <laughs> Stop giving your opinion, Nathan. This is an unbiased show. <laughs> Quote, unquote, unbiased. Our bias is against everybody. That's correct. <laughs> no one escaped the wackiness of religions. Against That's a true. very hoity-toity high view of theology as an unassailable fortress. That's true. That's yes. our position. <laughs> Everything's weird, and we like it that way. But going back to the actual oh, yeah. topic, there is a solution. There is a very strange solution that is, it was uh, developed by a Catholic monk named Molina in the 16th century. And it went, no one cared. No one, no one cared at all. The Protestant Reformation was happening. There were much bigger things at stake. Literally no one listened to Mr. Molina and his book kind of faded into obscurity for about 500 years. Then... No one cared until contemporary philosophers of religion exactly. got a hold of him. And as a contemporary philosopher, as a, uh, a self-proclaimed contemporary philosopher of religion, I think Molina's work, which later turned into what was called Molinism, named after him, is kind of a brilliant fix, if a very strange one fix i mean it, both both th those other theologies work this is just another way around it that tries to minimize the contradictions and so walk us through this right so the big things that both arminians and calvinists want to preserve is both meaningful morality and a sovereign god morality doesn't really feel meaningful if you're forced into it specifically a salvific choice what is your salvation worth if god just foists it upon you without your free will but also what god that is so subject to human whims and strangeness is really worth worshiping that's what's kind of intention the arminians want to say it's more important that we have free will 
Calvinists want to say it's more important that God is completely in control. Molinism, uh, which is, I'm combining both Molina's original ex, uh, exposition of it and contemporary ones most famously done by Thomas Flint in the 90s. I, no, no, the 2000s, in the 2000s. Molinism tries to solve this problem with a wacky time paradox thing, as most contemporary philosophy of religion does. So we have what's called middle knowledge. And that just means God's knowledge of what are called counterfactuals of creaturely freedom. And a counterfactual of creaturely freedom, a counterfactual is a state is an if-then statement. If person A, if Pastor Joe is at the Billy Graham crusade when he's 19, then Pastor Joe will convert to Christianity. That's a counterfactual statement. So God knows all of these counterfactuals as facts about the universe. God knows that if a person that shares all the properties of Pastor Joe is created, and that person that shares all those Pastor Joe properties is put in a circumstance, which is the Billy Graham crusade, then the individual that contains the Pastor Joe properties will make a decision to become a Christian. If that's just a fact about creation, a fact that God knows, like one plus one equals two, then God can, it can know it, and it can still be sort of in the hands of the creature. It's still a free decision of the creature. It's just an unchangeable free decision. Because in every possible world, if Pastor Joe is in this circumstance, he'll do this. If he's in a different circumstance, he might choose differently. So there we have freedom. There are facts that God knows, that not creates, that determine what people will do. They're generated from the person themselves. It's not generated from God's creative act. And then we have God's sovereignty. God knows all these facts. He knows what Joe will do in circumstance A, the Billy Graham crusade. He also knows what Joe will do in circumstance B, where he just goes drinking for that night and doesn't become a Christian and never does, perhaps. God uses all of those facts about every possible creature and every possible scenario, and he can process all these information because as a uh, monotheistic omni-god, the Christian god is omniscient, knows everything, can process all possible states at once, no problem. God takes all that information and then decides what world to create. And by world, I don't just mean the planet Earth, I mean the whole universe and every set of scenarios that will ever happen across the course of all time. God makes that universe such that every person he wants to save will be in a situation where they can get saved. And every person who doesn't get saved never gets into a position where they might be saved. This preserves God's sovereignty. He still chooses who gets saved. It also preserves human free will. Because if, let's say, Bill, who's not a Christian, doesn't become a Christian, doesn't get Christian salvation, God doesn't want Bill to be saved, God will just not create a scenario in which a person like Bill would become a Christian. However, it's still logically possible for Bill to become a Christian, just in a different set of scenarios, one that happens to not exist. So there we go. You get your cake and you can eat it too. Sort of. <laughs> it really is a, at least to me, not just compelling, but a very elegant solution to the problem. Yeah, elegant, sure. It's got a lot of, I mean, you deal. anytime you deal with counterfactuals in possible worlds, 
I feel like elegance sort of falls up, falls out the window, but maybe it's only elegant to me because I'm somewhat removed from the philosophical literature to you being in the weeds. It's grotesque. Well, I really like it because I think it gives a compelling philosophical understanding of the mechanics of it without sacrificing free will or predestination. I think it does a really good job of that. Whereas with the Calvinist position, and the Arminian position, it's it's more directly theological, which I don't like as much. I like to have my my logic on the table and to see how it works out with logical formulae. Right. But I can see a lot of Christians having issue with this because it's super mechanical and super technical. And while it's it's a compromise, so and what's the one thing we know about all compromises? They satisfy nobody. Because yeah, you get to keep free will and you get to keep predestination but you don't keep a free will that people really like you keep this free will that's well you could do otherwise but the circumstances in which you get to choose that don't exist and will never exist so can you actually choose otherwise no actual in the sense of this is the actual world philosophically the world that happens to exist there's another world that could have existed where you could have done that but that world doesn't exist and you will never exist in that world because you're you here. So do you have free will? Well, yes, but actually no. And also predestination. God gets to set up the world exactly how he wants it. So who gets saved, gets saved. Who he wants to get saved, gets saved. Who he doesn't, doesn't. But he has to do that with pre-existing material. God knows what Joe will do in circumstance A, Billy Graham Crusade, and what he'll do in circumstance B, drinking for the night. He doesn't cause that, though. He doesn't say that any person like Joe will be saved if they go to a Billy Graham crusade. No, he just knows that fact and applies that knowledge when creating the world, which is not a predestination that's nearly as strong as a Calvinist perspective. So I feel like it really satisfies no one except the people it satisfies, if you get what I mean. Yeah, according to the internet chat rooms, no one actually likes Molinism. Right, so I like it. I think it's a great solution. But for someone who has Arminian concerns, they're probably not going to find it that helpful because their concerns are, I want actual free will. I want in this world to be able to choose A or B. And for a Calvinist, they're going to be like, I want God to actually decide who does what. And the Molinist splits the middle in a way that might not be satisfactory to either side. Right. So yeah, welcome to the world of Christian theological debate. Yeah, welcome to the world of religion. No one is free of the strangeness and the complexities and the possible contradictions. And while we don't have time today perhaps to speak of this, this does lead into another theological topic, which could be fruitful for another episode all on its own, which is the question of open theism, which proposes Mm. an alternative to particularly omniscience and some of the concerns it has raised for human freedom. Yes, that is a very interesting topic that we definitely don't have time for. But yeah, and this is an interesting kind of episode because we we talked about a debate within a tradition, which we haven't really done yet. And I think it was really cool. I think we should try and do that more often. I agree. So yeah. But until we come to another debate, I think we should close the episode by taking a look at something that everyone can agree is wonderful. Yes. I think I know what you're talking about. Most certainly. So 
If you enjoyed this discussion on Calvinism and Arminianism, and whether you yourself affirm one of these positions or neither of these positions, you absolutely must go to YouTube and look up a band known as the Calvinists. And Austin, what will they find? You'll find some interesting alternative rock talking about the five points of Calvinism, which uh, are, there's an acronym, TULIP, and you can find out the uh, five points of TULIP, total depravity, unconditional election, limited atonement, irresistible grace, and perseverance of the saints by listening to their songs. They haven't actually done the fifth one yet, but the first four are pretty fun. If you have any interest in Christian theology relating to this topic, definitely check them out. A good laugh, no matter what side you're on. Will they sponsor us? Definitely not. They're just as amateur as we are. But (laughs) there you go. And so Christianity has some weird views on whether or not it's your choice to be saved. And in a religion where salvation is the biggest thing that's talked about, everyone is yelling about who's saved, how do you save people, get saved, are you born again? It's really interesting that they can't agree on what that even really means. Yeah, but I suppose that's just another foray into the world of religions. Yep. Well, thanks for listening. This has been Welcome to the World of Religions, talking about predestination and free will. And uh, we hope that you are predestined to listen to the rest of our episodes, or if you're not, that you'll use your free will to do so. Thanks for listening.